assume that uh, everybody knows who this bloke is. This is Andy Ball. Andy's here with his um, wife, Kaz, and Carolyn, that would be, and uh, three children, uh, too, and been a, a vital member of our congregation for a while and is part of the teaching team, too. He's going to bring a message to us today. So why don't we pray for Andy that God's Spirit will speak to us uh, clearly today. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, uh, for Andy. We thank you for the things you've been teaching him and challenging him on, Lord God, over these last few weeks. And just pray now. Uh, that his words will be your words, Father, uh, that they'll be clear to us, that we might learn and grow in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Mike. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to open it, click on it, swipe it, and find Hebrews chapter 13. If you've got a really big fat one like this, you might want a ribbon in it. Put your hand up if you had a pen pal. Ever. Okay. So it's an age thing, I'm guessing. (laughs) This is like no hands over here. Um, If you've never had a pen pal, it was kind of... Sometimes it happened just by circumstance. You met someone and they're from somewhere else and you agreed to write to each other. But often it was organised through your school. Um, or through some other thing that you're involved in, and you would get to write a letter to someone else. Often they're in the other side of the world. John can remember the address of his pen pal in Wales, I discovered. Uh, do you still write to them, John? No. I have a vague memory of having a pen pal, and it's so vague that I wonder if I actually ever wrote to him or whether I just <laughs> lost the address. But the art of letter writing is kind of a lost thing these days. I don't know if you've noticed, but we get really chatty and informal in emails, but if you went to put that onto a piece of paper, you're like, well, I can't write that. And in my workplace, I work in, uh, in the legal sphere, and we still write letters. We write a lot of letters. And when we write back and forth, you kind of finish your letter in one of three ways. Your letter either finishes with a call to action, uh, you know, So please, can you sign this document and return it to me so I can do the thing you asked me to do? Or you end it with a conclusion that you want someone to remember. Yes, your legal position is like this, so you're good to go. Go ahead and do that thing. Um, Or you might end it with a warning. If you do that, I will sue you. Um, Or if you don't pay, you'll be in trouble, or whatever it is that we get excited about and say. The part of Hebrews that we're up to now is the sign-off in the letter. It's the bit to remember. We've finished with all the explanation and all the substantial reasoning, and now we're at the pointy bit. It's it's the final paragraph. This is the bit uh, that is the sign-off. This is the bit that the author wants you to remember and do. I went through a stage at work um, in in phone calls. I don't know what was wrong with me at the time. But I used to say the, the wrong name just as I hung up. So let's say I was talking to Nathan and, I, uh, you know, okay, great, that's fine. Thanks, Nemo, bye. And then I hang up and go, oh, man, I called him Nemo. Oh, where, did that, where did that come from? And it was a terrible impression to leave on the person who called me. I even got in trouble once. Someone made a formal complaint uh, because they thought the name I had called them just at the end was some sort of veiled insult. And, uh, you know, word came back through official channels that, you know, they needed to have a word to me. The sign-off is really important. The finish of the letter is the big, uh, the big thing to remember. So we're going to read it together. 
Um, I've got a few more verses than uh, Michael had last week, so we're going to uh, read a bit faster than he read. Starting at verse 7, chapter 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their faith, sorry, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies, that is the bodies of the sacrifice, the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honourably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep. May, that, may the God of peace equip you with, every good, sorry, with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to finish there. Well, I do note, in, uh, just for you letter writers, in verse 22, he describes this uh, as a short letter. So you'll be glad that I'm not preaching out of a long letter. If this is the pointy bit of Hebrews, then you've kind of got to ask yourself, what was the point? What was the point that was trying to be made? What, are, what is the climax that we're getting to here? What was the uh, motivation for this short letter? And since we know from looking at the letter that it's written to Uh, Jewish Christians or people who were Jewish who have chosen to follow Christ, you can see that a good portion of the letter is focused on helping those Christians understand what it means to leave Judaism behind and stick with their decision to follow Jesus. You've got to understand people who left Judaism in that time and they turned to another faith, they were typically punished very severely. They were treated really badly they had things like disinheritance. You know, we get disinheritance for being nasty to your dad, uh, but they got disinherited from the family just by making a religious choice. They were often excommunicated. They often lost their job. It wasn't cool to employ a non-Jewish person. They were dispossessed of their homes and or their belongings. They were harassed, sometimes tortured, sometimes mocked publicly, imprisoned, 
sometimes even martyred for their decision. And they had a way of escaping all of this. It was quite easy. You simply renounce Jesus and go back to Judaism. And I reckon at times that would have been really tempting, really tempting. Judaism had such a long, rich, deep and God-centred history that you can hear their Jewish family saying to them, hey, look at everything that you've just left behind. Look at this. We've got the heritage of the prophets and we've got the connection with the fathers of the faith, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're associated with great leaders like Moses and Joshua. They belong to us. We've got the, the priesthood and the temple and the covenant of the law and all this fancy furniture which is so symbolic and deep in meaning and the temple worship and the ritual of the Day of Atonement. And you had all that. And now what have you got? What have you got now? And there is only a one-word answer, but it's a powerful one, Christ. And so the author goes on to say, yep, all you've got is Jesus now. But let me show you why he's not just enough, he's better than anything you had before. And he goes on to say, Jesus is a messenger from God, but he's better than the prophets. And Jesus was a leader, but he's better than Moses and better than Joshua. Jesus serves as our priest, but it's better than the priesthood that you saw before. Jesus serves in the sanctuary that's better than the one you see here on earth. He introduces a covenant that is better than the old one. And he made a sacrifice that was once for all unlike the rituals that continually happen again and again and again. Jesus is not just enough. He's so much better. And just like the moon reflects the sun during the night, but when the daytime comes and the sun shines brightly, the moon disappears. And the author is saying, hey, you saw a reflection of God and his heart and what he was going to do? Don't hang on to the moon anymore. The sun has come. Let's get excited about that. You know, don't go chasing the moon during the day. It's been eclipsed, absolutely eclipsed by the sun. And you can, we can see that theme running right through. It starts at the very start. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son. And who is his son? He, he's the one that he's appointed heir of all things. And through him, he made the universe. And he's the radiance of God's glory. And he's the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He's pretty awesome. Don't get excited about the moon. This is the sun. And then it goes on and on and on. Chapters 3, 7, 10. It, it continually makes this, trans, this, uh, this comparison. It was okay before, but it was nothing compared to Jesus. Don't go back. Now that you've chosen Jesus, don't go back. It is inferior. Stick with your decision. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because the God who has made these promises is faithful. We hear those words in chapter 10. Don't settle for a shadow or a reflection. Go for the real thing. And then at the end of chapter 12, we get these fantastic words. Since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence 
and awe. And this is when we're now the, the writer is now turning to that final paragraph, that sign-off part of his letter. It's just before yours faithfully. And if you got to write his name on it, this is really annoying. Um, but those instructions that we get in chapter 13, the ones we heard Michael talk about um, last week, brotherly love, hospitality, honouring marriage, trusting God instead of money, they're not just good ideas for living. He's not giving good tips, you know, be nice to your mum. He's actually giving us things that are an expression of worship. 12 to 28, worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. These actions are descriptions of what comes from a heart that adores Jesus and is so raptured by him that our actions inspire us to live it out. We actually are motivated from our heart to live a certain way. So I'm going to suggest to you that this whole chapter is actually about what it looks like when the worship that is inside your heart comes out. You can't sort of squeeze it out. It just comes out. I'm trying to think of an example. I was walking along the beach a few weeks ago with my kids and we saw these weird, um, this sort of sea sponge looking things, but they weren't sea sponge. They were something different. You know, I accidentally stood on one and outshot all this mucky, smelly, dirty water. And it's kind of like us. You know, we can look uh, a certain way from the outside, but when what's inside comes out, that's when you know what's inside. We can kind of try to pretend and try to modify our behaviour, but there are times when you can't help what's in your heart coming out. And sometimes it's quite convicting. Other times it's quite inspiring when you see what's inside someone's heart coming out. And that's what these verses are about. Listen to what uh, some people have described worship as. Uh, Worship is not the slow song that we sing. It's not the amount that you place in the offering basket. It's not volunteering with your church. These are expressions of worship, but it's not actually what true worship is. Worship goes down to the heart. It is to honour with extravagant love or extreme submission. John Piper says this, he distinguishes between external expressions of worship and what's going on in the heart. And in the reason, he says, I make this distinction between the inner essence of worship and the external expression is because Jesus did it in Matthew chapter 15. He said, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. In other words, there's an external expression that has no connection with what was going on in their heart. John Pipe says, this is zero worship. It is zero because there's no heart dimension. You can do as many deeds as you want. You can go to as many church services as you want. And you can never be worshipping if there is all external and nothing in your heart. All true worship is, in essence, a matter of the heart. It is more, but it is never less. And then he goes on to say, that worship reflects itself in two basic ways in the New Testament. One is acts of the mouth, acts of praise and repentance in worship services or in small group gatherings or in other settings. And the other is acts of love with the body and the hands and the feet, acts of love that show the supreme value of God by what we are willing to sacrifice for the good of others. And funnily enough, he takes us to Hebrews 13. I get these things from Hebrews 13, he says. Listen to this amazing summary. Through him then, through Christ, 
that is, let us continually offer up a praise to God, sorry, a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So I'm going to suggest to you that this whole chapter 13 is actually saying here are ways to express your worship. If your heart has been captured by Jesus, if you're so enamored by his greatness and how amazingly better he is than everything that you left behind, then here are the ways that it can come out. Here are some ways to express your worship. Michael talked about some of them last week. I'm going to talk about four of them this week. And if you've got these little grey sheets, um, which I hope you do, uh, if you don't, I don't know where they are. Where are they, Nathan? Are they out the front? Appoint someone to go and get them for you. Um, if you've got that little grey sheet, you'll see that there's four areas where our worship can come out. And they are these. Responding to Christian leadership. Responding to strange and new teachings. That sounds a bit weird as a way of worship. Responding to Jesus' sacrifice and responding to the needs of others. So let's turn first to responding to Christian leadership. How is it that we can worship or how can we express our worship when we respond to Christian leadership? Well, the verses kind of give you a pretty good clue. And let's go straight to it. It starts in verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, when the author says remember your leaders, he's not saying like sit around over a cup of tea and say, oh, you remember that guy? Remember our youth leader from... You know, the 90s? He was a funny guy, had a mullet. Um, He's not saying remember them. He's saying bring them to the front of your mind. Keep them in mind. Why? Because he wants you to consider the outcome of their way of life. If we were using, if if I was writing this in an email or even on letterhead, um, I would write to you and I would say, think about the people whose faith and life choices you admire and imitate those things. Imitate them. Look at the outcome of their life choices. I'm sure that you've got people, I do in my life, I'm sure there are people in your life, when you look at their life choices and you go, man, they're good at that. Man, they've made some good choices in that area of their life. Can I suggest to you, don't just stand and admire. Do it. Imitate it. We have a handful of people in our lives who, when we sit down and talk with them, we come home and say, that was a good idea for them that they suggested there. Well, that's a good thing that they do with their kids. Well, that's a great way that they um, communicate with their neighbours. I'm going to do that. The author is telling us, hey, that's a really good way to express your worship. If you have people that are making godly choices and it's going well in their life, those choices are wise and godly choices, imitate it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Imitate it. Can I ask you a couple of questions? Who are those people for you? Do you even have them? If you do have them, write down their name on your sheet of paper and have a think about the actual life choices that they make that you reckon are really good and wise and godly. Make a note of it. Chances are, I hate to tell you this, chances are you are that person for someone else. Chances are you are that person for someone else. And that kind of comes with a bit of responsibility 
what influence are my life choices having on someone else in my circle of friendship or family? You know that this is kind of uh, this is kind of an expression of worship in itself. We're told to worship Jesus. And now I don't know if you, you see. Um, there's no 11 or 12 year olds here, are there? Okay. Um, see, when you see these little teeny boppers fall in love with a pop star, all right, I don't know, Taylor Swift or something like that, uh, not only do they want to sing along to the songs, they start to dress like that person, uh, they start to do their hair like that person. If they hear that person on the TV or the radio, they kind of start to talk like that person. I don't know if anyone of you have ever seen a kid who's so enamoured by their idol, they start to even talk with the accent that they have if they're not Australian. I did it once. It's quite embarrassing. But, but it, it, is, it is the epitome of adoration and, and worship to imitate. The author is saying, hey, if, if you know someone in your life who's imitating Christ, then catch that. Imitate that. There is little more powerful than the personal influence of a positive role model. I'm going to say that again. There is little that's more powerful than the personal influence of a positive role model. The comments about responding to leadership don't go there. Oh, and if you're filling in the blanks, by the way, that word is imitate. Don't just remember your Christian leaders. Imitate them. Uh, But the comments go further. And then in verse 17, he picks up this theme again and he says, uh, Obey your leaders or have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden for that would be of no benefit to you. That is, if it was a burden, it would be of no benefit to you. When this passage uses the word obey... uh, It's not talking about blind obedience. He's not saying that church leaders or Christian leaders are the ultimate authoritarians and whatever they say should go unquestioningly. The word actually suggests be persuaded. That is, listen to what they say. Listen to the heart of what they say. Give thoughtful consideration to it and then take on what you're hearing. Can I tell you that God does not expect blind obedience? Now, you might think I'm wrong about that, but let me explain to you why I say that. God does not expect blind obedience because God went to incredible lengths to communicate his heart of love to us. He didn't just say, this is what I want. Ah, no questions. Don't, nope, nope. Just do it. That is not God's way. Instead, God communicated his heart of love to us so that we could understand what it was and why it was that he asks us to do what he says we ought to do. God does not expect blind obedience from us. He expects obedience, but it's not blind obedience. It's, it's communicate my heart to you and then tell you why I want you to do what I want you to do. That is the kind of Obedience that is being talked about here. Listen to the heart of your church leaders. Blind obedience is not a good thing. It actually leads to what I would call chameleon Christians. That is, uh, when I'm following this person, I look this way, and as soon as something different or more uh, convincing comes along, I switch, 
and I look a little different and I talk a little different and I practice my faith a little differently because they were more convincing than that guy. That is blind obedience. It's kind of like being a mushroom, kept in the dark and fed a lot of... Um, But if we become naysayers, if we become underminers and seat-warming passengers, then we run the risk of turning the task of our church leaders into a burden and not a joy. And the author says, hey, that is not good for you and that is bad for your church leaders as well. It's always going to be hard to be in Christian leadership. For those of you who have those positions, um, can I say on behalf of all of us, thank you. That is a big task and it's it is one that has an incredible accountability. It's not like you have a boss who, you know, will just sort of go a bit wishy-washy and, you know, you might be able to convince him uh, to give you a good score. These people are accountable to God. It's like the ultimate accountability. And it's always going to be hard work, but it can be a joy. It is for us to allow it to be a joy and not a burden. That is our role, to respond in a way so that it can be a joy and not a burden. So what is a worshipful way, uh, what is a worshipful way to respond to Christian leadership? These verses would suggest a few things. One, look at the godly choices of your Christian leaders and imitate them. Allow those people to influence your life. Give thoughtful consideration to their words, but listen to their heart. Not just the words that come out of their mouth. Listen to their heart. Contemplate what it is that they're trying to, trying to achieve and trying to communicate. Look to the person that they're looking to, to Jesus. And seek to, work, see, seek to make their work a joy. Because then it is profitable to you and to them. There's some applications, questions for you during the week on the back of your sheet. But... Uh, If I see you turning over, I'll call you out. Okay, we're going to move on. The second, the second way that we can express our worship, our adoration and our admiration of Jesus, another way that we can express it is when we respond to strange and new teachings. Now, this is itself a little strange, I reckon, to see this in here as a way to express your worship. But stick with me as... Uh, We tackle it. So verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which are of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. If anyone can say that without stumbling, I'll let you come and read that. That verse 10 is a hard one. Let me read you verse 9 and 10 from the message. Don't be lured away from him, that is from Christ, by the latest speculations about him. The grace of Christ is the only good ground for life. Products named after Christ don't seem to do much for those who buy them. The problem in this time when when this letter was written um, was this. There was some teaching coming about which talked about the spiritual value of certain foods. There was a suggestion that eating certain food would have a spiritual impact on your life and the abstinence from other foods would do the same. 
And the author is kind of riling against this notion and saying, hey, it is not what the gospel is about. Jesus and the message of the gospel and the means of salvation has not changed. Jesus, the plan of salvation and the means of salvation have not and will not change. If you're filling in the blanks, you just had it there. Have not and will not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. So don't be carried away by these teachings. It's kind of another example of how you can imitate your Christian leaders. He's saying, hey, you Christian leaders don't get carried away by this nonsense. Don't you get carried away by it also. There are two main reasons why this, this strange new teaching was so rubbish in the eyes of the author. And they are these. Firstly, it's, it's legalistic. It says, do this thing and it'll have a, a positive spiritual impact. It's the opposite of grace. It really allows you to say, I have achieved something spiritually in my own life. I don't need God to do it for me. I did it. The other thing is that it denies the reality of the heart. Jesus clearly said when he was uh, talking about the kingdom of God, the people who are into the kingdom of God are not in or out because of what they do or what they say. It's not about food and it's not about ritual. It's about the heart. Dietary abstinence. Maybe it was veganism. I don't know. (laughs) I like to bag out on people who have funny diets. Um, But can I just suggest to you, we do this. We do this kind of thing. I can confess to you, I've seen people smoking out the front of church and gone, what's that person doing? What are they doing that for? And I admit in my head and in my heart, I've made this massive leap and I've leaped to conclusions about that person's heart and where it stands with God because they have a cigarette in their fingers and they're puffing it down their mouth. What the heck? There's nothing to do with their heart at all. Nothing, nothing. Jesus said this in Matthew 15. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth and goes into the stomach, or the lungs, and then goes out of the body, but... These things come out, what, sorry, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and it's this that defiles them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are the things that defile a person. Eating with unwashed hands doesn't defile them. He was dismissing all these religious rules, and he's saying, hey, that is not what God is interested. God wants to capture your heart, because it's your heart from which That's where everything else comes from. Your physical habits, the words you speak, the way you treat other people, the way you relate to God, the way you speak to your spouse, the way you love your kids, the way you talk to your parents. Everything comes from the heart. You can filter at the mouth, but you won't deal with the problem until you go to the heart, the source. It's a bit like putting one of those filters on your tap. It doesn't change the Melbourne Water Reservoir way upstream. All it does is change what's coming out of your tap, but someone else's tap is going to be just as polluted as before. Jesus is saying we're going to the heart, we're going to the reservoir from which everything comes. We can respond to these strange and new teachings by asking a number of things. And we can respond to them by being, here's the next blank on your page, by being judicious. It's a word we don't, very, uh, don't use very much. When I looked it up, I saw this little graph. 
I don't know if you've ever seen these. You know, you look up dictionaries on the internet and they have a graph about how often it's used. And the judicious graph went like that. It's pretty, it's, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to bring it up today. It's a word that we don't use. What it, mean, what it means is by applying or exercising wise and discriminating judgment. It means looking at something and saying, is this good or is it not good? It is actually the opposite of what we hear today. Oh, all ideas are valid. Everyone's got the right to have their own opinion. You can't bag that out. Um, Being judicious actually says, yeah, you know what? I'm going to decide between what I think is good and what is not. And I'm going to label it and I'm going to do that on the basis of sound judgment and and on the basis of what I know to be true. And to display that good judgment or to make those discriminations between good and not good, I actually have to know what God says about himself. Because if I'm not making it from here, then I'm making it up off the top of my head. And that is not an act of worship. That is not me cherishing what Jesus said about himself and who he is. If I'm making judgments about God, about faith, off the top of my head... I'm actually devaluing Jesus and what he said and I'm promoting the value of my own ideas and the stuff that I just cooked up in the back of my mind. So what is a worshipful response to strange and new teaching? How is it that I can express worship when I look at strange or new teachings? Well, first of all, I ask some questions. I ask whether it keeps Jesus front and centre. Because if it doesn't, then it's not from him. If it doesn't keep Jesus front and centre, then it's not from him. I ask whether it replaces or supplements what I know to be true, that God wants to capture my heart. If it's behaviour modifying, you know, do these three things before you go to bed and you'll lose 10 kilos. Um, If it's just behaviour, just conduct, but it's not actually going to my heart, then I know again that it's not from God. And then the third thing I ask is whether it's consistent with what God has already stated about himself in the Bible. God gave us this for a reason. The reason is not just to memorise it. The reason is to use what we see here to make life choices and faith choices. The third thing the third way that we can express our worship of Jesus, express the value that we place on Jesus, is how we respond to him and his sacrifice. Pick it up at verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us, then, go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. This is a reference to uh, the sin offering that we read about in uh, Leviticus, uh, I think it is. And and, uh, this um, exercise that people went through um, to atone for sin. And so an animal would be slaughtered and parts of the animal would be extracted, including its blood. And then those parts that were being sacrificed were taken into 
the temple and were sacrificed there and offered to God as an atonement. But the body of the animal was seen to be unclean. It had, had, it had kind of had sin transferred onto it. And so it was taken, literally taken outside of the whole camp and burned. And the person who took it out there to burn it had to wash themselves before they were allowed back into the camp. It was seen as that kind of repulsive. It was bad. It was yuck. The author is making actually an amazingly powerful analogy here. Jesus made the sacrifice. Not only did his blood atone for our sin, but he took on that sin upon himself. He was disgraced and he was repulsive to those people who sacrificed him on the cross. He was shunned. He was absolutely rejected. And he did that for us. Why? Because the eternal was more important to him than the temporary. He actually loved us that much that he would take on that race, that repulsion, that, that rejection. And if we're going to identify with Jesus, if we're going to treasure and value Jesus and what he did so much, then imitating him is not a path to worldly glory. It is actually a path to rejection. We are taking on something that other people find offensive and repulsive and kind of wacky. It's to be rejected. The Jewish Christians that were getting this letter were kind of being put under a whole lot of pressure. Hey, forget Jesus. Ditch it. it was not, it's not worth it. And the author is saying, no, don't go back. Don't choose family or friends, acceptance or comfort or the retention of your belongings. Don't choose those things ahead of Jesus. If you really want to value Jesus, if you value him more highly than anything else, then let all those things go and just hold on to Jesus. That is an expression of worship. When you put him first ahead of everything else, these people were being pushed to the brink sometimes of death. And they're effectively being put in the position of saying, hey, do you value your life more than Jesus? And they were being asked, the author says, hey, say no. No, you don't value your life ahead of Jesus. He's worth it. He's better than anything else you've had and anything else you could have. So what are some worshipful ways to respond to Jesus? First of all, I would tell you, it's to hear and accept the gospel. That God sent perfect Jesus to die so that you didn't have to. So that us undeserving people could be forgiven. So we could leave behind all the shame and the guilt from the things that we've thought and the things that we've said and the things that we've done. And we can leave all that behind and we can actually run to God instead of running away from him and leave that natural inclination to flee from God and now we can run to him. Secondly, a worshipful way to respond to Jesus is to pursue the eternal ahead of the temporary. And when I say that, we, we face those choices every single day. 
And so many of our big life choices are made of that weighing up. Pursuing the eternal or the things that God says is important instead of the things that others tell us are important. I saw a whole bunch of people give up a whole weekend and a whole and many hundreds of dollars of their own money because they chose to pursue an act of love for a needy person and they spent a whole weekend working to love a person who doesn't know Jesus. Many of them could have had other plans. They could have been with their friends. They could have used that money to buy shoes or, I don't know, ties for the car, whatever. But they chose to invest their time and their money and their effort into something which was... which. Of the value of which was eternal, that act of love has spoken volumes into that non-Christian's heart. That's valuing the eternal. That's actually an expression of worship. Thirdly, a, a way to worshipfully respond to Jesus is to value him above all else. That is, when I hold back on saying something because I don't want to be embarrassed... You know what I'm doing then when I do that? And I do this. I confess to you I do this. I'm actually putting my desire to be accepted, my desire not to be embarrassed, I'm putting that above my desire to obey Christ. I'm saying, yeah, it's good to obey Jesus, but I'm not going to do it in that setting because that would be downright embarrassing. And I've just elevated my embarrassment as more important than obedience to Christ. Lastly, responding to the needs of others. Verse 15 picks up uh, this notion. It says, uh, sorry, verse 16, do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Just in case you were thinking that singing along to Chris Tomlin uh, is an act of praise that is pleasing to God, the author is quickly, worship expresses itself in deeds, not just in nice songs. Those songs are great and they speak of what ought to be in our heart. But he's saying a heart that is worshipping Jesus, a heart that treasures Jesus and what he says and what he did, a heart that treasures him responds warmly outside of the hours of 10 to 12 on a Sunday. Listen to what God said in the Old Testament when he had people who were worshipping him in a church service but their hearts were not connected with it. This is from Isaiah chapter 1. When you come before me, so when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate With all my being, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I actually hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Please the Plead the case of the widow. Regularly, we hear this throughout scripture, that 
acts of worship are not worship if they don't come from the heart. Mouthing the words of a prayer, mouthing the words of a song, is not actually an act of worship unless it connects with our heart. We read that just before. Time and time again we see uh, Jesus pushing back against people who wanted to kind of say, look, I'll worship God by doing this and I'll do these things and then God can clear out of the rest of my life and I'll do what I please there. And Jesus has said many, many times, if, G- if he's captured your heart, if God has captured your heart, if, you're, if your heart adores Jesus, if it is absolutely valuing him, then kind of everything in our life submits to him. We've got a quick video to show you before I close. Why does that work in church and not anywhere else? Look, when, when, when my daughter comes to me and I say, hey, go, go clean your room, she knows better. She, she's not going to come back a couple hours later and say, hey, Dad, I memorized what you said to me. You said, go clean your room. You know, what am I going to say? Oh, good job. That's what I wanted. No. And, and she's not going to come to me and say, Dad, I can say, go clean your room in Greek. Listen. That's not going to fly. And and what if she says, you know what? My friends and I, we're going to gather together and every week we're going to have a study and we're going to figure out what it would look like if I cleaned my room. (laughs) No, none of that's going to fly. Just go and clean it. She knows that. So why do we think that this type of thinking or this type of talk is going to work with Jesus? I mean, Jesus was as black and white as you get. He would look at people and he'd say, why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I say? He says that in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I ask you to do? I mean, why would you call someone your master and then not listen to him? And, and he says in Matthew 7, 21, he goes, listen, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's only the one who actually does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I was deeply challenged by that when I saw it a few weeks ago. So deeply challenged that I had to share it, uh, and I've shared it with a number of people, including you now. The challenge kind of expresses itself in these words. If I step back and I look at the behaviours and the thoughts and the attitudes that come out of my heart, does it appear to me that God is influencing my heart, or am I just placing filters on all the different parts of the way my heart expresses itself. Am I just placing filters on my heart or am I actually allowing Jesus to influence my heart? Am I memorising what Jesus said? Am I studying it? Am I learning it in Greek? Or am I actually doing it? A heart that is captured by, by Jesus, that values so highly what he said and what he asks of us, a heart that captures, that is captured by that actually desires to do that. It doesn't just desire to know it, 
He desires to live it. So what does a worshipful response to others look like? First of all, I would suggest to you that it looks heartfelt. It doesn't give out of duty. It doesn't give out of obligation. It gives because the heart motivates to give. It serves because the heart is motivated to serve. Secondly, it's obedient to Christ. It shows love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness and generosity. A heart that is worshipping Christ shows those things to others. It doesn't just praise Jesus, but actually shows those things to others. It values imitation of Jesus. Thirdly, it desires to uh, honour Jesus above every other desire. My desire for money or my desire for comfort, my desire for not being embarrassed, my desire for acceptance or my desire to have stuff. Fourthly, it brings glory to God. It causes people to think more highly of Jesus than they did before. A heart that is worshipping Jesus is motivating me to act in a way where people say, if that's what Jesus motivates you to do, that's good. Jesus must be not so bad. I'm thinking more highly of him than I did before. Lastly, it reflects the saving love of Christ. It is gracious, it is forgiving, it is selfless, and it wants the good of others. And speaking of giving glory to God and the saving love of Christ, those are in the words of our final song. I'm going to ask the music team to come up so that we can sing that together. Thank you.